to the Binge Eating Dietitian podcast. My name is Joe. I'm a registered dietitian and we're all here to smash some binge eating. Hope you're having a good day so far and you are in the mood for another guest episode. In today's episode, I am bringing you the most wonderful Eliza Kinzo. Eliza hails from Australia, is currently living in the UK and is also a registered dietitian like me. As you'll hear from today's conversation though, Eliza is so much more than a registered dietitian. Their intention is to bring you back your food joy, bring you back your food joy or to help you find food joy if you've never experienced it before. Food joy. Who does not love that concept? And it's something that we get into in today's episode. I am really interested in Eliza's background and why they chose to study dietetics, why they chose to work in this anti-diet space, how they help their clients to overcome binge eating. Yes, please. More of that. Thank you very much. And just generally what it's like to be Eliza Kinzo. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Please do let me know. You can always drop me a DM. I'm at binge.eating.dietitian and you can follow Eliza on Instagram as well at Liza Kins. I have put their contact details in the show notes so please do go and check out their website. All right enjoy the episode here we go. Eliza Kinzo, thank you so much for being a guest on the Binge Eating Dietitian podcast. How was your day so far? Thanks for having me. Yeah it's been good. Had lots of um, bits of admin to get caught up on today. So I'm very grateful to be talking to a real person. (laughs) Yeah, no, it's been good. (laughs) I feel like I'm fangirling a little bit because I followed you on Instagram for like a long time now, probably two years or so. And I'm really interested in you and your story. There's so much I want to get into, but first can you tell us a bit about like how you came to be a dietitian? What was that drew you towards this career? Yeah, of course. Um, It feels like quite a long time ago now, but um, I basically went straight from high school into studying nutrition and dietetics and made that decision because I've always really been into food. I loved cooking, loved food science and did a little bit of um, study in high school where I was looking at sports nutrition and this was under the guise of like PE studies and sort of physiology and looking at anatomy and stuff and really enjoyed that side of it. Um, But I guess at the same time was interested in the culinary aspects of food and was working at a restaurant and kind of saw the chefs working really unsociable hours and wanted to do something that was a little bit more I guess, like academic and lifestyle friendly. Um, So that was sort of part of it. But then the other part was that, like I'm sure many um, dietitians and nutrition students will empathise with, um, had kind of my own sort of troubled relationship with food where I was quite like obsessive and controlling to a a point and kind of understood from even that perspective, like being, you know, 15, 16, that, diets didn't really work and like it wasn't really a sustainable uh way of controlling our bodies losing weight whatever it might be but um I kind of had the thought that like oh I'll go and study nutrition learn all the facts and then I'll be able to like you know be in control um so I had kind of like a yeah a really sort of multi-layered interest in nutrition and then 
got into studying and kind of realized it was actually much more of a clinical sort of uh, subject and like role as a dietitian, like most of us end up working in quite clinical roles with people. Um, and so I hadn't really considered like what a career as a dietitian would look like, but it turns out that it suits me really well. Like I'm really happy uh, with this like industry, this or not happy with industry. We can leave that for another time. But like, you know, I'm, I'm kind of, I feel like it's well suited to me and that it's a good balance of working with people, but also having this really scientific background, but also being really grounded in food and the enjoyment of food that was kind of what drew me to it in the first place. So yeah, that's a very like, roundabout way of saying it. managed to get into study nutrition straight out of school and then kind of stuck with it um and then yeah here we are I think your story is in many ways very similar to other dietitians in their story yeah general interest in nutrition and also have your own disordered relationship with food going on in the background how did it pan yeah. out from that point of view as you studied um, yeah, I was in quite an interesting position because I had moved away from home to study. Like um, in Australia, most people stay living like wherever their family lives to study. And so I was one of the few people who had kind of moved out and was quite independent, um, you know, completely in control of my own shopping, cooking, eating practices in comparison to people eating in more of a family dynamic. And I guess that's, that had already sort of put me apart a little bit from maybe my peers in my course and other people around me. But I really found this sense of difference in that I was like one of the biggest people in that space. Like I was quite suddenly aware of my body size and how other people were relating to their body sizes. And I'd always had this kind of, um, I guess, like dissatisfaction with with my weight and with my body as a teenager, as we're kind of like socialized to do. But then I guess like, like I was saying before, because I had this awareness that dieting wouldn't really work for me. And like, it wasn't something that I wanted to try because I had the mentality of like, oh, I'll, I'll be able to do it for a bit. I'll lose some weight and then I'll stop dieting because I don't want to diet forever. And then I'll gain weight and it'll all be for nothing. So I kind of had this like underlying criticism of diet culture and, and of like weight science and what we were being taught from the beginning but then being in this space where I was one of the biggest people in the in the room like there was not many people who were fatter than me um kind of drew me more towards being overly critical of of these methods and and kind of like starting to question some of the um politics around fatness and body sizes in nutrition and some of the guidance that we were like being taught to pass on to people. Um, and then I was really lucky in, I think it was my third year of uni to have a lecture given by Fiona Sutherland. So the mindful dietitian um, on Instagram and she has her own podcast as well. Um, and that kind of like started to actually put all of these pieces of what I was sitting with together. Like it kind of made sense like, oh, they're, you know, the practices that we're being taught around promoting weight loss and around, you know, having particular BMI ranges for different bodies and all of these things. Um, I, I kind of started to like actually put into words how bullshit that is. <laughs> like it was all a bit like, oh, right. Okay. So that is oppressive. And that isn't like 
healthy and ethical for us to be teaching. And I really started to get basically develop a terminology and a, a language around um, like health at every size and non-diet approaches and all the while kind of having had this discomfort with the way that my body was positioned within this industry and within like um, diet culture in general really started to sort of put all of these pieces together that actually like I didn't have to be overly critical about my own body. I could be critical about the systems that we're living within and started to learn more about non-diet approaches and health at every size. Um, And then that kind of coincided with when I was finishing up and graduating. So I kind of just kept on um, like finding spaces that I could work with those ideas and concepts. Um, But yeah, it was interesting being a fat person studying nutrition. I think like when I went into uni, I probably wouldn't have identified as fat, but I definitely came out with that as part of my, like, yeah, part of my identity and something that I had sort of developed a politics around. And so it was, yeah, fascinating to see the way that that was sort of received by my peers and by lecturers and the way that that was kind of held or not held by the institutions that we were a part of. Like, I remember having one, there was one assignment that I did quite close to the end of my studies where we had to, uh, it was like a proposal for something. Um, I think I think it was like looking at policy. And so I'd, I'd written this uh, proposal about how we should monitor the advertising of diet products or something. And I remember like the feedback that I got from that was so negative because it was like, well, why would you want to like monitor what people are like? Basically the the thing was like, why would you not want people to lose weight? And I was kind of like, can people really not see this huge issue that creates like this really, I don't think I quite had the language for it at the time, but like noticing the way that all of the people that were sort of supporting our learning, all of our lecturers, all of our tutors were so entrenched in diet culture and the way that they couldn't understand that the pressure to lose weight and the kind of um, fat phobic rhetoric around a lot of the advice that we were giving was actually really harmful for people. Like they couldn't connect that. But I think I'm really grateful that I was able to sort of learn about that so early on and then kind of run with it as I went forward in my own like personal relationship with food and also as a professional supporting other people. Yeah, I got to say, like listening to your story, I'm a little bit envious of how you were introduced <laughs> to these concepts so early. I don't know exactly when you you were in uni. I think I'm a little bit older, older than you. I went to uni when I was, um, well, in 20, from 2010, 2010 to 2014. And believe you me in my time there there was no rhetoric around anti-diet approaches even eating disorders weren't really taught to us in a very meaningful way I think we might have had like half a lecture on it and I'm thinking back we had an assignment where we had to we had a few really problematic ones one where we had to count our calorie intake for the week did you have to do that also oh yeah of course I feel like that was like day one of like dietetic yeah. school there was that and I remember having to write an essay on inverted commas here because I know people can't see me but obesogenic environments and like it was just ridiculous the the way that it's like assumed to be the norm like there's no criticism of it at all 
an assignment where we had to uh, check each other's measurements, like anthropometry yeah. using the skin full calipers and the weight measurement tape. Mm-hmm. Horrific. Horrific. Yeah. Did you have it's that shocking. as well? Yeah, absolutely. And like the absolute disregard for people with eating disorders in those courses, I think is so harmful. Like, like, like we were saying before, so many people who get into nutrition do so because of, you know, some underlying um, interest, whether it be because of a disordered relationship with food or otherwise. But, you know, there is a much bigger proportion of like than in the general population of people with eating disorders in nutrition courses. And the way that that's kind of just swept under the rug, ignored, it's not really acknowledged. Um, And I think a lot of the things that we're being taught as nutrition professionals, because it is at such a kind of like um, really quantitative scientific level, it really promotes a lot of the disordered behaviours that we now see as professionals working in that space. So, yeah, it's pretty scary to think about. Um, it really is. I'd love to know. I, I'm very interested in in you and, and your background because you came, came from Australia. You you studied there, right? Like yeah. I studied in Ireland, and I'm I'm like you. I I'm an expat. I moved away, so I've lived in the UK and in America now. But in Ireland, um, to study dietetics, there's no kind of interview process or any kind of screening. It's just based on how you do in your end of year exams. So it's like a point system. They don't get to meet you. They don't get to see you or meet you mm-hmm. as a person before they accept you onto the program. And like looking at that now, I just think, how is that allowed? Like we have to screen people who want to study nutrition for eating disorders. And I also applied to study in the UK at the time. And as far as I can remember, there was some level of screening in that. There was certainly an interview. They met me face to face before accepting me onto the program. Mm-hmm. I'd love to know what is it like in Australia? Like, do they just take you on without meeting you? Yeah, there was no um, no screening process, no interview process about like your personal relationship with food. It was all about um, the grades that you'd got at school and and making sure that you had the, I guess, correct qualifications. Um, I think nutrition is one of the only uh, specialities or like courses that you would be studying where it actually should be something that you screen for. Like I think about comparing it to like like studying physiotherapy, for example, like I can understand how that's a very, um, like, because it's not so much a relational uh, degree, there's no need to screen people for like things that might, they might need to be treated for in that kind of a course. Um, Or like, you know, psychology, for example, maybe they might screen an interview for like people with mental health conditions and a trauma history. But I think because nutrition is seen as a really scientific kind of factual industry or, or, you know, space to be in, I can understand why they wouldn't screen, but actually seeing the way that a lot of nutritionists and dietitians work, it should be absolutely like foundational to be looking at some of that relational stuff because it does come up in so many of our like lives and relationships with food. Now that we have the data to show that, yes, nutrition professionals are more likely to have eating disorders, we need to start screening students when they're at the most vulnerable age of 18, 19, starting into a massive life change of university and now potentially going to exacerbate their underlying eating disorder. Yeah. 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 I think it would make such a big difference. And even if they're not screening for it, at least acknowledging that within courses and sort of getting people support 
within those spaces to make sure that they're not kind of, um, I guess, having those that disordered behaviour exacerbated by some of the things that they're learning because a lot of it is really sort of sensitive information. Yeah, absolutely. So you qualified from uni and then started working straight away with people with disordered eating, disordered relationship with food. Uh, I took a bit of a break between when I finished uni and started working in the kind of intuitive eating space, um, basically because I was conscious that I didn't want to work in a hospital setting and wanted to uh, kind of develop a bit more around like skills and knowledge around health at every size and non-diet approaches and particularly um, upskill a bit around like the counselling side of things because I think while my course was actually really good in giving us a lot of those tools, it was something that I graduated that I was conscious, like when I graduated, I was conscious that I didn't kind of have, I wasn't, I didn't feel fully prepared to be doing that. So I did start doing um, a little bit of work, uh, like uh, one-on-one, like nutrition counselling with some people, but it was more in a kind of um private outpatient setting in Australia that's much bigger than it is in the UK and so it's much more accessible for people but um wasn't working in that space full-time and yeah I guess throughout it I was um really trying to learn more about the politics around food and bodies learned a lot more about like the stuff around body positivity and fat liberation um and then also at that time was working on um my podcast which is now pretty much permanently on hiatus um, with my friend Bran, who, um, yeah, we were kind of like navigating that new grad uh, experience together. Um, And I'm very glad that I had the like time and space out of the industry, so to speak, because it gave me a little bit more perspective. And like, I, I felt like I was able to make decisions with a little bit more consciousness about like how I was working and where I was working. Whereas like, I see a lot of people feeling that pressure to really rush into like, whatever job they can take um, or to like set up their private practice immediately. But actually I think it's really important. Um, yeah. To be able to sort of like digest that information that we learn from uni and, and sort of reflect on some of those experiences. And something that I'm really grateful for actually is that in Australia, when you become an APD, so the equivalent of an RD, um, you have to do a year of mentoring with a, another healthcare professional with a dietitian, And so throughout that time when I was sort of not properly practicing, I was undergoing this mentoring process with a really great dietitian called Jess. Um, she has her own clinic in, uh, in Sydney and maybe Adelaide. I'm not sure if she's like expanded now, but, um, they're called glow group. They're on Instagram and everything. Um, but it was really useful to have someone else to sort of support my learning and kind of reassure me that I didn't have to be pushing really hard to be like, working in private practice and getting clients in and, and moving really quickly. Um, so I guess it is like a huge privilege of mine that I did have that time and space, but I was at the same time, like working in an unrelated job and kind of doing my dietetic stuff on the side, which isn't maybe what you typically think of when you finish uni, but it was really good for me because it gave me, like I said, that space and that kind of like time to sort of, think about how I wanted to be working and where I wanted to be working. And then, yeah, eventually ended up picking up a bit more of a client load and then um, got a job where I moved to London. So, um, 
yeah, then basically ended up working in this space full time. When did you move to London? I moved in 2019, um, just before the pandemic, which was an interesting experience. Um, I was working for a private practice. Um, I'm sure a lot of people will know what I'm talking about, but I'm not going to mention names because I don't think I need to. Um, but um, yeah, I was working for like a group practice that specialized in intuitive eating. And that experience was really, really valuable to me and that I got to see loads of really great clients around um, a really specialized area of intuitive eating and disordered eating. So like the clinical practice that I gained throughout that time was like unparalleled. It was amazing. Um, but obviously the practicalities of working throughout the pandemic were quite a lot for me. Um, we were working from home the whole time and, you know, being in a new country with not much social support and not many people around me, friends and family and stuff. I found it quite challenging. Um, and yeah, ended up getting quite burnt out, but um, ended up leaving that job in 2021 and then have since moved to working like freelance and doing a few other bits on the side as well, which has worked out much better for me because <laughs> I found throughout that, that I really need that balance of having like clinical stuff and also other bits and pieces of work to focus on um, to give you a bit of contrast. How did you cope during that time? Like just as somebody who has moved a lot, I know how hard it is. It's still hard to this day. And I've lived away from home for five years now. Mm -hmm. How did you cope? Yeah, I think because I'd moved for uni. So by the time I got to London, I'd already been living out of home for like, or away from my family and, and kind of like making my own way for good like six, seven years at that point. Um, I think I already had quite a lot of the practices set up that really helped sort of cope with that over the pandemic. Like, for example, having like most of my communications with my family were already over video calls and, you know, I was quite good with keeping in touch with people through messages and, um, you know, chatting over the phone or whatever rather than being able to see people in person. Um but the actual, the the part that was more around my work practices and the burnout were more challenging because it wasn't really something that I ex experienced before. I think because it, I was working in a field that I'm so passionate about, like I really cared about the kind of values behind it and the politics and the work that I was doing, I really like wanted to do well. Um, but also didn't just didn't have the capacity to so like I couldn't physically work as much as I wanted to and I think that was quite a difficult thing to sort of explore and experience in that I think we're sort of taught to be able, like to really push ourselves really hard and um kind of go above and beyond particularly I see it with a lot of nutrition professionals we, we a lot of us have similar personalities and similar tendencies in terms of how we relate to work and so I think that was really difficult for me, sort of um, finding the limits of my capabilities and sort of having to respect them, having to respect my body's boundaries, my mental health's boundaries. And in terms of coping, I think it was really useful that I had a couple of really great colleagues um, at that job and outside of that job um, who were really supportive and great to kind of work through some of this stuff with. Um, I think it was 
quite difficult in that specific role because it was a very small workplace within a very small part of the industry in the UK. There's not a lot of people working in private practice here. And so there's not much um, established support or kind of workplace practices and examples of how things should be done. And so I think it was really difficult for all of us because we were kind of making things up as we go along and testing things. And unfortunately, like I was the person to cop it when things didn't go so well. Um, So I think more than anything, just getting out of that situation helped me, like not being in that workplace anymore, not having the kind of expectations on me and not having the expectations that I was putting on myself around what I wanted to do. Um, But aside from that, like, it's kind of difficult like to reflect on that time. Like it's, it feels very surreal looking back on it because it was really quite like challenging and painful, but I mean, I went to therapy, (laughs) like put a lot of work into making friends here. And I think what it taught me was that I really need to be conscious about the way that I'm engaging with work and the way that I'm relating to it so that I can like do it in a way that sustains me as well as the people that I'm supporting throughout it. Um, Yeah, I learned a lot about it and I've kind of like brought a lot of that into the way that I'm working now, which I'm really grateful to have experienced, even though it was pretty tough at the time. This work can be challenging enough, right? Working with people with eating disorders, disordered eating all along the spectrum, you have to really take care of yourself as a practitioner. And there's even guidelines from like the BDA, the British Dietetic Association of how many people you should see in a day, because, you know, you can't see too many, you will burn out. So mm-hmm. considering you're working with, you know, clients who needed a lot from you, plus had the whole stressful work situation on top of it. It's unsurprising to me to hear that, that you did burn out. Yeah, absolutely. And like, I think like in hindsight, it's so obvious, but I think when you're in that kind of situation, it's really difficult to see because you're so focused on what's happening and um, maybe not aware of some of the broader things that are occurring. Um, but yeah, it is a really difficult like uh, thing to get right. Like it's it's a hard um, balance to strike. And I think a lot of people now are doing some really great work and like thinking about what that looks like. Like you were saying, having recommendations around numbers and um, practices around work. And it's definitely something that I'm very boundaried with now with my own time. Um, and I hope to see more of that come through because it is like, I guess as dietetics and nutrition in general becomes more conscious of um, psychology and the role of dietitians as counsellors and the way, like the role that we have within people's care teams, I think I'm I'm hoping that it will lead to us getting better support around um, like work workplace practices and our own wellbeing throughout it because. Like we were saying before, with students not having much support around eating disorders, it is it is an issue in our industry that people get quite, um, you know, they're, they're overexerting themselves and not kind of able to care for themselves because we don't have much support, um, like, yeah, for those practices. I love that on your, your website, one of the, the lines there is that you help your clients to find food joy. What does that look like for you when you're working with clients what does that what does what does that mean exactly oh I guess it means 
it means a lot of things to different people. Um, I think the, I guess, like that particular part of my website and the um, philosophy behind that is that joy is a as a concept can be accessed through many like many different ways through food so um for some people that might be the pure like sensory joy of eating and the way that it feels in our mouths in our bodies and the kind of yeah really embodied sensory aspect of it but for a lot of people like a lot of the clients that I've worked with have really struggled to connect with that sense of pleasure particularly when you have like so much history with a particular food or a particular taste or food group and so it's thinking creatively about how we can access or define joy um, in a more holistic way to think about like okay so food is something that everyone has to think about and engage in and it's also something that can be really um like nourishing in a number of ways in that it can bring people together and it can give us a lot of fulfillment in terms of cooking for people, eating with people. Um, A lot of people get that joy out of thinking consciously about where their food is coming from, you know, maybe like um, developing a consciousness of like farming practices, environmental stuff. Um, I guess, yeah, the, the concept of food joy, I really... I, I, it really sort of sticks with me because it allows us to kind of develop a positive relationship with food regardless of some of those barriers that we might encounter or regardless of our history with food. It allows us to access that pleasure and that satisfaction that isn't just like, yeah, looking at um, the the like basic nutritional function of food. Kind of goes back to when you said you were choosing a career and you didn't want to choose like to be a chef because of the long working hours. Yeah, <laughs> but you're bringing some of those practices through to your work now. Like yeah, helping people definitely. find joy in cooking and appreciating food. Yeah, for sure. And like, I really find that a lot of a lot of what helps people access that joy is actually taking the emphasis away from nutrition as a function of food so like helping people worry less about calories and less about like eating perfectly so to speak or um kind of yeah taking that pressure off and giving themselves the permission to just actually experience food in its entirety because I mean that's one of the functions of diet culture is that it robs us of all of those experiences of connecting with people and eating in a really kind of um not mindless but like embodied way where we're not conscious of how many calories we're eating what you know what the macro breakdown of foods are and so it kind of gives people this liberation to be able to enjoy food and the role that it plays in our lives um which yeah I think does lean on a lot of other like like the culinary aspects and um dips into a lot around body politics as well which is really nice you see clients who struggle with binge eating in your practice. There's no joy in binging at all. And even this concept of food joy, I think people listening will be like, that's not me. Like I can never find joy around food ever again. Mm. What would you say to that? Oh, it's, it's interesting actually, since I've been freelance, the, 
break down, like the um, proportions of people, the clients that I see, it's much more heavily skewed towards people with binge eating disorder or some form of binge eating. And I feel like I've really ended up, yeah, working predominantly in that area with, with disordered eating. And it is really interesting to see the different like functions of binge eating and the behaviors that are associated with it. Um, I guess bringing food joy into binge eating disorder recovery or, um, you know, a positive relationship with food away from binge eating. I think the thing that I've had a couple of, like the thing that I always try and support people with um, is that permission because when we're binge eating, there's so much, uh, there's so much restriction involved, not just as a kind of counterweight to binge eating. So like restricting during the day and then binging in the evening or, or whatever cycle that looks like. But also while people are binge eating, there's so much self-talk around like, I shouldn't do this, this is bad, like there's this guilt, this shame that happens during and after the binge. And I think recognising that, that that negative relationship with that behaviour, even though it might be a really valid coping strategy for some people, it might be something that's really essential as part of their care practices, seeing that as something that gets in the way of food joy and being able to enjoy food full stop is really important. Um, And so I guess like a lot of the work that I do with people is trying to understand those negative thoughts, those kinds of uh, restrictive or deprivation mindset uh, thoughts that we might be having around binge eating and starting to see or starting to shift towards seeing the binge itself as something that has a role and has a function and has developed out of some kind of um, like not necessarily positive, but some kind of care strategy within that person's psyche. And I guess um, depending on where people are in their recovery and how they relate to these things, obviously some of this like might not feel accessible or appropriate um, and that's absolutely fine but it's working towards understanding yeah how how does this happen where is this showing up for me and I think particularly because we've been eating a lot of the time the foods that we gravitate towards or um, yeah the, the foods that we typically binge on are going to be things that are um, more I guess like in diet culture's terms bad foods, quote unquote. (laughs) Um, I feel like it's been so long since I've even like thought about foods in that way, but like, because they're the things that are typically viewed as like really delicious and really like pleasure filled. um, It's really sad to see when people can't access the joy that those foods bring because the binge kind of ruins it or that binge mentality ruins it. Um, And so something I really encourage people to do or to consider Um, And again, this is dependent on where they are in their recovery and how they're relating to the binge. So it's definitely not something I recommend for everyone, but it's something that I would like question and and bring into um, the conversations that we're having about the binging is like, what would it look like to be able to give yourself permission to have that binge, like to let the binge serve its purpose and to 
like view it as something that is a coping strategy as a tool that we have accessible to us and what would it look like leaning into the the joy that comes with that as well because I think what I do tend to see is that often with with binge eating there's this real kind of um dissociation or mindlessness that comes with it so we we really sort of like switch off when we're binging we're not present we're not um able to kind of recognize our body's cues around food we're not tasting the food it's just kind of this real mechanical episode but if we're able to kind of bring a little bit of mindfulness into that and start to see why it's happening where it's coming from and how it serves us it allows us to a access some of that pleasure and joy but also allows us to kind of engage in it in a more mindful way where we might be able to not be as mindless if that makes sense so like we're not as likely to kind of completely switch off we might be a little bit more aware of what's happening and able to kind of engage in it in a way that actually supports us and therefore sort of facilitates that food joy I feel like that's a very like long-winded complicated um, way all. of thinking about it but that was a that was a yeah actually I you're right like even when you're struggling with binge eating, there's still joy to be accessed in the food that you're eating, mm. which is a foreign concept to many of us. Um, because when you're binging, you feel like you don't even deserve any kind of pleasure because you just feel mm. like you're worthless, like the dog on the street. How else do you help your clients find food joy? I saw on your website that you also arrange like community events and you still partake in some cooking. Yeah, definitely. So Basically, the balance that I've struck with my clinical work now is that I do clients a couple of days a week um, and then I have another, I guess it's not really a part-time job, it's like a freelance contract that I hold, um, working with community, a community organisation that arranges um, or basically the project that I'm working on that I'm contracted to do is to um, support people with developing community cooking practices. So, um, this is under an organisation that strives towards food justice in London and really holds like really similar values to what I do around um, bringing that joy into food um, or accessing food joy. Um, and so that's a really nice way of like complementing the work that I'm doing clinically with really community oriented um, spaces that are quite structured and um also really focus on building capacity and capability within communities to self-sustain and be able to access food, particularly Um, as we know, like in London in particular, there's a real like crisis around the cost of food and and accessing um, even just things like spaces to cook in and uh, the means to be able to prepare food because people are so time poor. And so that's a really nice, like, yeah, way that I can sort of use my training as a dietitian, my skills in cooking to be able to facilitate people accessing joy in a different way. Um, A lot of the work that we do focuses on within that space, um, what we kind of describe as nourishing food practices. So not just the like functional nutrition aspect of food, but also looking at the different ways that food nourishes us and nourishes our communities and the land that we live on. So thinking about farming practices, the way that food is transported, shared, where it's coming from, um, looks at everything from food preparation to 
the washing up that gets done at the end of the meal. Um, but then obviously brings all of these people together around a meal, which is like the central aspect of that food joy. Um, and it's really, really nice, like nourishing for me personally to see these people who are maybe um, not fr- as frequently as they might like to being able to access these nourishing food practices to be able to come together and really engage in something like this. So that's really, really lovely. Um And then I also do a couple of uh, groups more in my like clinical space in the dietetics realm. Um, One which I'm sort of focusing on at the moment is called Fat Chats, where it's a space that um, we basically just come together to talk about body politics and fatness, um, kind of like a peer support group for fat people. So um, that runs online once a week and it's really nice to have people sort of coming together and really connecting over our shared lived experience that comes with being in a particular body. So I guess like I see the value in things like that, um, that real shared like common humanity that gives people, um, I, I guess it's it sort of, it's nourishing in a different way, but really gives us access to food joy because it means that we're not dealing with such a heavy load of like oppression around fatness and everything as well so yeah there's a few different bits and pieces um and then I'm always like cooking where I can and actually helping people experience the like sensory pleasures of food where I can um a lot of that does show up in the community cooking spaces but also like yeah just generally like cooking um and kind of sharing skills around cooking it's something that I do a lot with like friends and family and stuff being able to sort of support people's uh cooking skills because I think so often like it's really sad to see people who are um really entrenched in this kind of like disordered way of thinking about food where even when they're cooking they won't use particular like they won't use enough oil they won't use enough salt because they're so worried about the like nutrition of the food (laughs) and actually being able to be like oh but this like cooking this way will help it taste better and you'll get more out of it in more than one ways. Um, That can be really nice to sort of use that, I guess, like um, authority that I have as a dietitian to give people permission to like cook in a way that is joyful as well. In a way to add flavor and add taste and add joy back to food. You know, I'm wondering, like, have you come across some of the UK-based slimming groups? Yeah, (laughs) and I'm thinking of one in particular where, yeah, like oil is not allowed. You have to use like one calorie spray, and butter is a no-no, and even avocado is like not allowed. So it's so sad, but it's so interesting because I mean I work predominantly with people in the UK, and a lot of them will have been through said groups. Um, And when you start to actually look at some of the rules that they're taught to adhere to the like logic does not hold up like people are taught that like you can't have a banana but you can have like a snack size bar of chocolate and it's like where is the where is the logic in this like what are we teaching people why is this the case and it's just it's it's all a bit of a like power thing I think like it's people wanting to control what people are doing um and again, like that, you know, these groups, they know that these diets don't, they're not sustainable, they don't work for people. And so, I mean, more often than not, it's just a big money making venture. But 
again, that's a whole other conversation. Totally. A money-making venture that is endorsed by the NHS. It is mm-hmm. prescribed by GPs, which just blows my mind. Every yeah, time. it's pretty shocking. Where can people find you if someone wants to work with you as a client or join your Fat Chats group? Um, you can find me on Instagram or on my website. Um, my website is Liza Kins, like my name without the E or the S-O-E at the end or the O-E at the end. Um, so it's L-I-Z-A-K-H-I-N-S dot com or at that same address on Instagram. Um, yeah, there's uh, all the information on my website to work with me. To join Fat Chats, you just have to shoot me a message and we have a, an alignment call just to check that it is an appropriate group for you to be in. Um that space is also free to access for all of my current clients. So it's a really nice group where people can come together and kind of, yeah, work, like bring some of the stuff that we're working on and practice it in a kind of as safe as can, like as safe as can be space. Um, and yeah, they're kind of the places that I'm hanging out at the moment. That's an amazing resource, the Fat Chats group. What night does it run? Because I know people will be interested. <laughs> It's on on Tuesday nights at the moment. So actually, as we're recording this, I'm about to go and (laughs) hold that space now. Um, And we are hoping on branching out into some more like frequent stuff and potentially some online, uh, some in-person meetups and things, because it is a really nice thing to be able to like actually hug another fat person. And um, yeah, that's all on the cards for next year. What did you think of today's episode? I hope that the message of food joy, that you are allowed to experience joy with food. You are deserving of experiencing joy with food. And I really do mean that. And I know Eliza would agree with me that everybody deserves to have joy with food in some capacity. Reminder that Eliza's contact details can be found in the show notes. Thank you for joining me for today's episode. I will see you really soon for our next episode together. Until then, please take care of yourself. This podcast is for informational and educational purposes only. It is not a substitute for individual medical or mental health advice, and it does not constitute a provider-patient relationship.